0: Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar. I'm Ian Welsh and I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. Today we're going to be talking about deforestation and, in particular, asking if there is too much focus on palm oil. Of course, announcements at COP26 in Glasgow have refocused attention on the need for companies to transparently and, right now, immediately eliminate deforestation from their supply chains. However, new aid environment research is warning palm oil buyers of the risks from non pan deforestation by companies in the palm oil sector. And this begs the question, of course, how credible are corporate deforestation-free palm oil claims? I'm delighted to be joined by four expert panellists to lead our discussion today. Uh, I'm joined by Mark Wong, who's Head of Downstream Sustainability at Sound Derby Plantation, Chris Wakes, who's Programme Director at Aid Environment, Ruth Nussbaum, who's Co-Founder and Director of Pro Forest, and Matthew Leggett, Associate Director of Sustainable Commodities and Private Sector Engagement, at the Wildlife Conservation Society. Welcome to you all. And many thanks indeed to Aid Environment for their support in bringing our panel together today, and to Innovation Forums' Anita Thompson for helping bring everyone together as well. Now, we'll bring our panel in very shortly, but we do want to hear from all of you. So please do submit points and questions using the Q&A function at the bottom of the Zoom window, and I'll put them to our panel a little bit later on. Do try and keep your questions short and to the point, if you do, it is more likely that I will use them. And as usual for innovation forum webinars and sessions, we don't have any slides or presentations today. Our session will be discussion based. Okay, turning to our panel, Chris from Aid Environment, perhaps you can go first. Give us a one sentence introduction to the organization. And then it'd be great if you could give us some highlights from your research into palm oil businesses with non pam deforestation risks and the impacts that you're seeing from this for brands and their Uh, no deforestation peat
1: or exploitation targets. Chris. Thanks Ian, hello everyone. Yeah, um, so Aid Environment is a not-for-profit based in the Netherlands and Indonesia that uh, works to increase the sustainability performance of companies operating in agricultural and forestry sectors. Um, So Aid Environment's been, one of our jobs is monitoring land use change in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Papua New Guinea. And we've observed many trends over the years. One of the key ones is that the deforestation for oil palm plantation development has decreased. Um, Another is that we're increasingly seeing the companies um, clearing forest for oil palm are not really linked to international supply chains with no deforestation policies, so NDP policies. Um, You're seeing them increasingly with no known supply chain links, sometimes um, with no mill, Um, and often um, linked to buyers in Indonesia's domestic um, biofuel sector. Another trend that we've seen is that we pick up deforestation and it's on um, other concessions than palm, so typically timber concessions. Um, And it's quite a lot of deforestation. In 2020, we were able to attribute 13,000 hectares of deforestation to five companies alone in Indonesia for industrial trees. That's pulp and paper, plywood, rubber. Um, And what you see a lot is that there is a big overlap between the companies operating timber concessions and palm oil concessions. We estimate it's about 64% of timber concessions are owned by companies that also operate oil palm um, concessions. And it's often um, deforestation is on concessions owned by companies that are supplying palm oil to um, supply chains covered by no deforestation policies. So to look into this a little bit more and see sort of how much overlap there was and how much deforestation some of these palm oil buyers were exposed to. Last year, we published a report that detailed our analysis of 10 companies, seven in Indonesia and three in Sarawak in Malaysia, um, that operate oil palm and timber concessions and sell to oil palm companies, palm oil buyers with no deforestation policies. And we found one hundred and thirty three thousand hectares of deforestation between twenty sixteen and twenty twenty one for timber. Um, when you, when we raise this with um, palm oil buyers, which we've been doing for a number of years, because it comes up quite often, they will almost always um, say that they apply their NDP policies only to oil palm. It's, it's a commodity-specific application of the policies. There will sometimes be some some discussion with a supplier about non-palm-related deforestation. There is precedent, but officially it's usually um, the NDP policy is for palm oil. So this has raised a number of issues. One is that there's a lot of deforestation for timber, and timber has not got the in in recent years had not had has not had the same level of attention as palm oil. The discourse around deforestation in Indonesia and Malaysia has largely been linked to um, oil palm plantation development. You also have this issue of if you're a palm oil buyer and you're claiming that you're implementing a no deforestation policy, how authentic are those claims if? one of your suppliers is clearing forests. It's just not for palm oil. And then there's been this big focus, big change really in the the palm oil sector in the last few years that there's a lot of discussion about compensation, recovery of degraded habitats and degraded landscapes. Um, And if we're looking at things more on a landscape level and sort of working towards um, sustainable development of landscapes focused on multiple commodities, how does that really work in a a sector where no deforestation policies are applied at one commodity? So we've been advocating um, for the palm oil sector to expand the scope of their policies to include all deforestation um, that their suppliers might be implicated in, not just deforestation for oil palm. Um, And yeah, that's what we're hoping to discuss today.
0: Frank, can you give us a sense sort of reaction you've had from from the sector then when you presented them with this uh you know the proposition that should be thinking about everything that's involved in in these businesses rather than just specifically palm oil
1: so um you we've tended not to say everything actually because it is a complicated issue and it does present some challenges one of the reasons we focus on industrial tree concessions is because of this overlap between palm oil and that sector um they're often operated by the same people, same companies, they're right next to each other. Most reputable palm oil companies, buyers, are monitoring their supply base. Um, So and if you're monitoring your palm oil supply base, you are, by extension, monitoring the industrial tree sector in Indonesia and Malaysia, because they're right next to each other. You can't really miss um, what's happening on this sector. So we, we used this industry as an example, because it doesn't present huge logistical challenges. But I think people are, some companies are still worried about where it would lead. You know, they will, to give them credit, they will sometimes take action. There's a case of United Malacca is a Malaysian um, company that wants to develop a timber concession in Sulawesi. And they have put um, those plans on hold because of pressure from their palm oil. So there is some movement, but as an official policy, I think there's a lot of reluctance because where does it end? These companies often are involved in casinos, hotels, road developments. If you take it to its natural extension, I think everyone's a little bit scared of where that could lead.
0: Sure. Okay, well, thanks very so much, Chris. Um, audience, do be thinking of your, your questions, as I said, so use the Q&A uh, function for that, uh, and I'll put the questions to our panellists. Uh, towards the end of our, our, our session primarily. But yes, do be thinking of them now. It's always a feature of uh, events like this, that the um, really good questions come in at, uh, with about a few minutes to go when we have no time to answer them. So please be thinking of your three minute to go questions now and we'll make sure we do get to them. Well, thank you. thanks very much, Chris. Uh, Ruth, let me turn to you. Um, as for Chris, do give us a, a one sentence introduction to Pro Forest. And then I'm really interested to hear how much you, you agree with the, our central question. Has there been too much focus on palm oil? Given the undoubted progress that the sector has made. Ruth.
2: Sure. And hi everyone. Really nice to be here. So Proferous, for those of you that don't know us, so we're we're a global nonprofit organisation with with uh uh, teams in europe southeast asia africa latin america and we really support the practical implementation of commitments to responsible sourcing and production of commodities so we work very closely with companies through the supply chain and and also support sort of sector and landscape collaboration and so to your question ian if the frame no the framing for this is that we need to end forest loss and and loss of of natural ecosystems. As you said, it's been emphasized again, both at the climate cop and and also in all the biodiversity discussions that are ongoing. And and in that context, the answer absolutely is yes, we need to stop focusing just on oil palm. And I think, and and look at across both current and future deforestation drivers. And I think there's two really important reasons. The first is, no, as, as, as in fact, Chris has just said, we, there's been real progress and we need to recognize and, and reward progress so that people in the supply chain, no, in, in the sector see that making those changes has a positive impact. And, and secondly, we need to address the actual problem and that doesn't exclude Palm, there is still more work to do, but we, we have to focus where the actual deforestation and conversion is happening. Okay. Um,
0: so, what, how then do you think um, we can best leverage action on other commodities uh, from palm oil? T- take what's been learned in the palm oil sector. How can we leverage that in, in other, other commodities?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I think, no, maybe. The, the, to start with, and, and again, Chris, a, a little bit alluded to this. So one one of the things that we've learned from our work, I guess, over 20 years now with, with ProForest is that to really change things on the ground, you need critical mass and engagement of companies at, at, at all stages of the supply chain. And a lot of the progress that was made with Palm was underpinned by first all of the work through RSPO and the collaboration there, and more recently, things like the Palm Oil Collaboration Group. So that... That kind of coming together and building critical mass is really important. And so when we look at leveraging linkages, I think what what uh, um, Aid Environment have done and seeing those linkages is it, it's really important in raising awareness. And one of the things that we definitely need to do is raise awareness and, and use where people are already focused, like with Palm, to raise awareness that that there are issues elsewhere. And that's really important in getting high level commitments, which go right across commodities for for organizations. And we've seen that starting to happen with traders, for example, where it started with Palm. and, And now for many of them, it's across all of their commodities. Now, and maybe investors really have a, a role to play here in pushing that kind of high level awareness that says, yes, we have to commit to this across everything. But but to really make changes on the ground, we we need to in, in, involve actors directly. And you now what what we've seen, I, I think. The kind of positive is that we can accelerate by learning between commodities. So my own experience at the moment, I'm working a lot with the the Consumer Goods Forum in their Forest Positive Coalition, and there we're working with four commodities, and and we're able to take learning from palm and apply that to soy, pulp paper, packaging, beef, and vice versa, take the learning there and apply it. And and similarly, and lots of people both on the panel and many of the people I could see joining are very involved now in landscape initiatives. And exactly as Chris said, in in landscapes, commodities are often right next to each other. And and one of the things we're beginning to find is that you can start by working with one commodity, but gradually bring others into that discussion. So, so, I mean, what I would say in summary is if, no, first of all, do we need to go beyond palm? Absolutely. We need to focus on where no, what's actually driving forest loss and, and conversion of, of natural ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And if we want to do that, we can leverage the linkages, but it's, it's only a start. It would be nice if we didn't have to build the coalitions and build all of the engagement, but I think we really do. We need to engage the whole supply chain so we have... The critical mass of people working together to take action on the ground.
0: Thanks Ruth. I, I like your point uh, around uh, rewarding um, the you know the, the better behaviors that uh, the sector has demonstrated. Do you think that that's something that's really lacking? I mean it's still very easy to kick the palm oil sector and you know the, you know, it, there's all the negativity around in consumers in general or in the palm oil sector where in fact actually there's you know that's probably not entirely fair given the progress that's been made.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it's something that we should take much more seriously. And I, I I think that there's a great no growing understanding that people tend to respond to positive feedback. And if you don't get positive feedback for making change, then your your kind of appetite for, for continuing to make change is much reduced. And particularly because Almost everywhere, stopping deforestation doesn't just need companies, it needs government. If government don't get positive feedback and it doesn't contribute to re-election and and more popularity, they also, I mean, why would would you be engaged in something that doesn't bring positive feedback? So I think it, it is really important that we, not that we are, no, we need to be realistic about where challenges remain, but also really to recognize it in real time when progress is being made.
0: Great. Thanks very much indeed. Um, Matt, uh, let me turn to you. Uh, give us uh, one, one sentence introduction to WCS and then what are your thoughts, taking the conversation forward, what are your thoughts on the need to take a broader approach and to, to capture what's really worked in the palm oil sector to tackle deforestation uh, more generally? Matt.
3: Great, thanks, Ian. Thanks, thanks everyone for having me on. Um, so, very briefly, the Wildlife Conservation Society we're a we're a large um, NGO uh, focused on conservation of biodiversity globally, over sixty offices, um, with a, with a real interest and focus on tropical forests, and we have done for many many years. Um, I, I think um, it's really interesting to kind of hear the alignment between uh, Chris and Ruth's points. I mean, I think um, absolutely agree with all all the things that have been said so far. That you know, the need to take a broader approach is is uh, is almost becoming gospel. I think um, in this in this conversation, and I, I guess to go to a point, Ian, which parts of that broader approach, you know, can we learn from the palm oil palm progress that's been made so far? And I think there are a couple of real key ones. I mean, you know, I think the work that's been done in the palm sector around traceability and transparency is is incredibly. Um, It shows what's possible, shows what can can be achieved in very, very complex supply chains in many cases. Um, The work to involve smallholder farmers or plasma farmers in the palm oil sector, but smallholder farmers perhaps in other commodity sectors, that's also, uh, you know, has laid a pathway which we we should learn from and can learn from for for other commodity sectors. And I guess the, the final piece for me is around how to bring in uh, and engage other stakeholders um, including ngos environmental ngos and local communities um, i think there is still certainly work to be done on that third part in particular the engagement of um, indigenous peoples um, not just the palm sector but in other commodity sectors globally but those those three three areas i think are offer us some some opportunity to accelerate progress in other commodities i think the other thing i, w- I would kind of point to is that there's a need you know and chris alluded to this earlier that you know, we know where deforestation is happening. We we have the best possible data tools that have ever existed um, to tell us where deforestation and forest loss and conversion is is happening. And often that loss is happening outside of major concessions. Um, you know, it's happening in areas where, uh, frankly speaking, there are a lot of smallholders and a lot of those smallholders are producing multiple commodities that might enter global supply chains. So um, I think we do, not, we do need to urgently start thinking about um, prioritization um, that there's a need to triage the way in which we, we approach some of these problems um, you know we need, we need to make the best use of that traceability and transparency data that and the tools and the data that exist to, to focus on these um, often forest and farm frontier areas and that's something which WCS is um, very engaged on because frankly we can't achieve conservation outcomes that we're, we're hoping for without a heavy engagement in, in some of these conversations with the agricultural sector. So i think that's that's where i'd say um and i think um you you know certainly in in other food commodity um, supply chains particularly cocoa and coffee is a good example you know that work has begun and i would like to see um, i'd like to see that accelerated and i'd like to see those companies and the parts of those companies because it's often you know people think Uh, you know Cargill is is a company therefore everyone in Cargill should be talking to each other well you know the people who are sourcing coconuts coconut oil or coconuts in in Cargill are different to the people who are sourcing you know coffee and cocoa so I think it's really important that we um, we recognize the complexity of the businesses we're we're talking to as well so I think that that, that's probably my key point.
0: Uh, Thank you very much indeed Um, I wonder if just go back to the first thing you talked about the traceability and transparency that um you think the panel has done well can you give us a bit more on that what are the examples of the sorts of things that have worked in your opinion that then could be transferable to, to other supply chains
3: well I mean there's a number you know I think there's a, there's a number of different country, companies have had different approaches um, I think you know the perhaps this began with um, a lot of investment being put into supply chains you know mapping individual farms and farmers um, and I think through that process, there have been a number of tools developed which which kind of facilitate that um, process. So, you know, in Smartra, for example, there's been some amazing work done on supply chain traceability and transparency in the palm oil sector. Um, increasingly, I think we're seeing a, a realisation that um, a lot of NGOs and community groups hold really valuable data. So rather than going out and having to replicate. Um, a lot of those data sets, data sharing is becoming a lot more common. I think that's a real positive step forward. Um, you know, and, and tools like Trace, for example, which I'm sure many on the call are, are aware of, the, uh, can, can increasingly be used by companies to try and understand um, perhaps pieces of the supply chain they're less familiar with. So there's a number of different um, success stories, I think. I think I think the ma- the main thing really is companies are recognising that um, perhaps they don't have all the answers and they may have good understandings of what's going on down to perhaps a mill level or, a, or a, um, some kind of uh, sort of warehousing level in the supply chain. Um, but beyond that, they they need to kind of think about new approaches and ask questions. And it's not really rocket science. Um, a lot of it just requires a lot of a bit of hard work, a bit of field time, and a bit of investment. And often the answers then flow quite easily.
0: Great, thanks, Matt, um, and thank you, everybody. And thank you uh, to those who started putting your questions for our, our panel. Um, we have five already. Thanks very much indeed. Do keep come. Do keep them coming, though. As I said, um, we'll hopefully get through as many questions as we can. Uh, But do keep thinking about your questions and putting them onto the the Q&A box. Okay, let me turn to Mark Wong from Syme Derby. Mark, thanks for your patience. Um, Mark, from the perspective of a palm oil company, uh, do you think that deforestation focus should be somewhere else? Um, And what are the key points, moving from the conversation we've had already, what are the key points that uh, you think other sectors can learn from, from palm oil?
4: Mark? No, th- thanks, Ian. Maybe just a quick introduction to Sun W Plantation, then, for you know those on the call who are maybe not so familiar with us. Um, so, so we're a vertically integrated um, palm oil plantation company um, with operations, uh, you know, in Malaysia, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, uh, and the Solomon Islands. Um, but I look after responsible sourcing for Sunw Oils, which is the downstream refining business. Um, you know, and so the first question is, you know, is is there too much focus on palm oil? Um, you know, and I guess as a or company, you'd, you'd probably expect me to say yes, right? So that's a bit of a loaded question. So it's nice to hear everyone else um, also echoing some, some points around why um, we know enough now to try and broaden out um, where the focus should be and how we should be looking at these things. And I think for, for, for us, you know, because we've been working on um, sort of no deforestation, no exploitation supply chains for, for, for a while now, um, you know, we've got enough insights now to understand that actually there, there are other things out there which are, which are driving deforestation. So it's, it's really a question, I think, firstly around what's the most effective way for us to, to deploy resources so that we can get to where the issues are. Um, and as a palm oil plantation company, for us, it's also a question of leverage. Um, and and you know, then, let, let me talk you through that um, a little bit. So, so the first thing is that, you know if you look at the scope of responsibility that we um, already hold as a, as a sustainable palm oil company, it's about engaging at a parent group company level. So actually for us, the conversation is already beyond our physical supply chain it's not about potential issues within within the mills for example the plantations that we're sourcing from it could be for example um, you know sister or, or, or cousin mills which are associated with that uh, operation because of the other parent group that they sit under so you know even being able to uh, monitor at, at that range even be able to trace through and engage uh, at that level um, if I'm honest is is is, is, is quite taxing for, for companies um, and to try and then extend that through to, you know, potentially um, affiliated companies in other sectors, whether they be timber, as Chris talked about, or mining or even property development, means that there's actually a lot more resources that needs to be put in to really try and do that. And, and if I'm honest, I, I don't know if, if that's even possible to do well. You know, at a policy level, you can put it in place, but, but whether, you know, ourselves as, as a Palm company is able to do that well is, is, is a big question mark. The, but the most important thing I think around it is also about leverage. So, you know, even if you put a decent monitoring system in place where you're, built, you're able to, to identify these potential issues, as a palm oil company, do you have leverage on these other operations to uh, cease and desist? Because, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is, is not just identify what the issues are, but we're really trying to nip these um, drivers at the bud. Um, and in some cases, if you are you know, um, trying to speak to, to, to a company um, because, you know, the, the person that you're selling palm oil to, Has an auntie who also owns some shares in a mining company um those links and the and and that leverage doesn't necessarily isn't always always there um and and so you know from a kind of philosophical perspective i do understand um why you'd want to try and get that level of of policy um you know sort of across but um you know it does feel sometimes a little bit like it's, it's a matter of convenience more than anything else because palm oil companies are more engaged so you, you reach into the toolbox you pull out the, the, the same tool expecting that you're going to get the same results um, if, if you keep using that but i think you know we're in a, you know, we're in a situation now where we understand the issues better and a far more effective way of doing things or what's really needed is that we need to kind of engage more actors uh and, and, and more stakeholders who are, who are more plugged into those um those critical issues now I'm not saying that the work in PALM is done, because it's not, um, and that's to your question around what we can do to, to, to help, I mean, on one hand, I think that there's actually a lot of learning that can be shared across, you know, whether that's um, uh, kind of uh, methods or tactics that we've chosen, and, and Matt's spoken about, traceability as an example, you know, you can talk about uh, the way we do satellite monitoring to try and detect issues, uh, and even engagement approaches. So there's lots of sharing that can be done uh, of, of things that work, but I think also, just as importantly, things that don't work. Um, and the second thing, I think, is that, you know, because with these issues, we, we now realize that we really need a cross-commodity, multi-sector approach to these things, because deforestation happens at a, at a landscape level. Um, and so for us, you know, being in those landscapes, we can obviously be uh, one of the key actors also helping to drive the conversation at that, uh, at that point. Um, but I think the other thing that's really important to try and, and, and think about these days is that, you know, we, we always try and approach this issue... Um, in a kind of cookie cutter way, right? So we develop certain tools, whether it's traceability, satellite monitoring, and and even the the way we do assessments, and expect that we can actually just cookie cutter that across all the different landscapes to try and address the issues. Um, I think what we're starting to see now is is that we need to kind of shy away from that a little bit more, um, because each landscape is different. There's a different uh, stakeholders, there's a different set of drivers. Um, and so we really need to try and drive that conversation um, on the ground in these areas, so that we uh, are able to develop the solutions that's 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 most effective and required in that landscape. Thank you. Thanks very much, Did. Uh, what do you think then, Mark, is
0: necessary to to develop uh, more level playing fields? Then, what what's, what's the sort of things you need to see and in fact have seen uh, in the palm oil sector where you know it is a, a fair level playing field approach? Um, so that you know, it's easier to, for, for progress to be made? I mean, it, it, obviously, uh, government and regulation has a clear role to play.
4: Um, you know, a level playing field, maybe another way to think of it is, um, you know, how do we actually start to get the same level of understanding within the other sectors that we have in palm? And I think that's, that's probably one of the reason why, reasons why people come and leave Vision Palm again, because there's been a lot of work done, a lot of understanding. You know, I mean, if we were to look at the other sectors, whether it's um, timber or mining and property development, as an example, um, there's still a fair bit of work done, I think, to be able to trace and understand um, who the key actors are and who the key stakeholders are so that you can build that critical mass that Ruth was talking about. Um, and so I think it's, a, you know, and I think people shy away from it a little bit because, you know, it's a lot of work and it's going to take a long time. But the sooner we start, the sooner we're going to get to a point where we can actually um, you know, put something effective on the ground. Great, thanks very much indeed. Um, okay, and
0: thank you uh, for your questions. Let me turn to some of these now. Um, I, want, I We touched on this a little bit a while ago and I'm thinking about uh, traceability. Uh, I wanted to sort panel be interesting, I would be interested to hear from, from our panel their thoughts on the relative traceability or the relative ease of traceability and transparency in, in different sectors. Um, Chris, do you want to go first? Um, Our question specifically um, remarks that uh, palm oil feels like it's reasonably traceable. um, But what about other commodities, for example, uh, livestock, uh, soy? um, What are the challenges elsewhere, Chris, that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, so the palm oil sector is, um, in terms of Southeast Asia, I don't work on, on soy and cattle, which is more Latin America, but the in some ways the palm oil sector is a victim of its own success. Like it is substantially more transparent than other forestry and agricultural sectors in Southeast Asia. And um, I am sympathetic to the argument that sort of asking palm oil sectors to incorporate other commodities is a, is because, is a failure of, the, of those other sectors to, to sort of get themselves to the level that the palm oil sector is at. Because if you have a company in Southeast Asia Because the palm oil sector, so 83% of the refining capacity in Indonesia and Malaysia operates under NDP policies. So if you have a company that's clearing, that has a concession in Southeast Asia, it's quite easy to link it to a palm oil buyer because there's so much transparency. It's much, much harder to link it to like a timber company, a timber concession to a timber buyer. It's much, much harder. To, to link it to um, a destination, because there, there isn't this um, business practice of public supplier lists. You know, you don't have these very clear sourcing policies that are on their websites. So I, I completely agree with a lot of what Mark said, you know, the, the palm oil sector has, we have to acknowledge that they're doing a lot better um, than other sectors. And I think there's, this is quite a complicated issue and there's quite a number of different points. One is you have to get the other sectors up to the standard of the palm oil sector, because you know it is, the timber sector will be transformed really by, by the timber buyers and, and seeing in that sector what we've seen in palm oil for the last few years. Thank you. Um, Rose, I wondered if I could, you could perhaps um, uh,
0: give some thoughts on the uh, role of the upcoming or incoming EU deforestation regulations. Um, and uh, you know the impact they are going to have, and I've heard some people saying that there is actually um, a risk of um, moving out of high risk areas uh, with the with the you know, un- unintended consequence, perhaps, of the of the regulation. So, and also in terms of thinking the, the requirement there for further traceability as well. Ruth, sure.
2: Um- Yeah, so I I think we no, we've seen partly because we've had experience from from the timber regulation in the past, as well as other things that that regulation is certainly a a useful, a useful tool in terms of driving attention and and driving a, a kind of real focus on an issue. Uh, and so, from that perspective, it's it's great to see that you now people are thinking more and more, not only for deforestation but human rights and other key issues about about regulating. I think exactly as you say, the the big concern that I think is shared, interestingly, across people with many different views on this is that is that an, a, a, a binary or unsophisticated, unsophisticated regulation really does risk. Unintended consequences or you no know, kind of perverse incentives, and in particular to shift away from anywhere that's high risk. Exactly as you said, because you no, know, if you're if you're in a high risk area, the the if if you're buying you no know, soy, for example, or, or even palm from somewhere that, that there's no deforestation happening, you probably are not at risk of of being asked to prove it's deforestation free, and 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 then you lose leverage. You you will tend to see. No, the markets that don't care will continue to buy from high-risk areas, but without seeking to, to drive change. And so m- many of us are, are really trying to push the, the EU to say, uh, keep it keep buying from high-risk areas, but make sure you are being proactive in supporting change in the land, no transition landscapes that you're transitioning from maybe having been deforestation frontiers or deforestation risk. Areas to be becoming more stable production landscapes. Um, and similarly, I think to the point about. No small farmers and smallholders. It's it's much easier if you if you trace back to a concession um, or a large producer to demonstrate that it's deforestation free. And I think there is a very real risk of pushing smaller players out of supply chains into Europe. So I think for both of those reasons, so lots of very positive things could come out of the of the regulation that could really recognise you no know, regions and and jurisdictions and companies which have worked to remove conversion deforestation from their their supply base or from their production areas. And that would be fantastic, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't doesn't drive these unintended consequences. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Ruth. Matt, I wonder if I could ask you just to take this forward a little bit. um, What are the sort of incentives then that work uh, to really get the changes in in, in supply chain uh, behaviours that we're trying to do? So what are the incentives that people need to think about?
3: That's an interesting question. As I was just thinking about what Ruth was saying and, and kind of reflecting somewhat on, on Mark's point, I think one of the one of the fundamental differences between the palm oil sector and other sectors is the lack of investment that's gone down into trying to solve this problem. Um, and partly that's a product of kind of NGO focus um, and time, but, but a lot of it, you know, credit due to the companies, uh, they have turned around and, and spent a lot of money and by and large, the kind of the other sectors you hear about that are connected to deforestation risk really don't spend very much money at all and trying to help or understand what's going on in the smallholder or, or small business part of their supply chain. It just really doesn't get that much focus and attention. And yet the expectation is that they have high level sourcing policies which you know, commit to various different good and wonderful things, but the investment just isn't there at the lower part of the supply chain. And and as I said that, I've now forgotten your question name, so you're going to have to ask me again. Tell me, tell me what it was.
0: Luckily, I wrote it down, so I wouldn't forget it. Um, So yes, really thinking about incentives. Would you any comments on the incentives that need to be put into place to really drive the change in supply chain behaviour?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the incentive in the past has always been sort of sort of fear of NGOs has been one of the big incentives to drive supply chain change. In, in many cases and, it, and as, as glib as that sounds many of these things have happened because NGOs have banged the drum and consumers have started to pay attention and that is important you know I think it's important that um, we, we you know NGOs out there uh, that do this continue to do this work I think that's an important they have an important role to play so I think that's that's key for, for me I think there's also this there's an increasing we're living in a world where it's going to be harder and harder for companies to buy sustainable product and, you know, if they care about these things and they're making these commitments and um, we're rapidly accre- uh, approaching and depending on your, on your views, perhaps already gone over the point where if you tot up all the sustainability commitments of various different companies, and then you look at the uh, availability of potential sustainable supply, um, the, the numbers don't match. And for certain commodities, that is absolutely a hundred percent true. Um, and therefore there is a very strong commercial incentive for companies to start moving quickly on some of these issues if these are things they care about so I think um you know I think that another flip side of that commercial conversation in terms of incentives to action is is simply that um there is an enormous untapped um market in a lot of these smallholder producing areas where people are, are don't have the support they need to produce high quality good volumes of, of product and that can represent a business opportunity and I think that's important to recognize as well um, you know, really what we're seeing in deforestation in many of these areas is a, um, is a, is a market failure and that market failure needs to be addressed. Um, and I think that is an important part of the conversation, which again, you know, you could say has come from many of the learnings from from the oil sector. There's a, there's a market incentive to to act. Um, you know, and I think there are there are moral and ethical um, and legal um, other incentives which are certainly applying across many different landscapes, which also need to be considered. Um, you know, but I, but I think it's important that, that sort of the nuts and bolts of the conversation don't get too far away from the commercial um, logic to to working quickly to try and solve this problem. You know, if companies want a predictable, sustainable supply at a certain quality, then we need to work hard. Collectively, there's a bunch of stakeholders to, to try and address this
0: issue. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Mark, let me com- come back to you. I wanted to put a uh, slightly different question. Please feel free to comment on what you've heard from the other members of the panel. But I, another question we had was thinking specifically about the uh, role of government and the challenges when um, governments uh, don't appear to be perhaps putting in the level of commitment to deforestation that uh, perhaps they perhaps they should. Uh, our our question references um uh brazil indonesia and others not committing to the level of uh, you know not making the commitments necessary really for, for deforestation so how challenging is it for you know in your your, from your perspective um when you know there isn't that government will and 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 drive uh, for deforestation to be addressed that, that,
4: that's a good question um to a certain degree you know um I guess for the private sector, we've been working in many landscapes around voluntary commitments. Um, so, kind of, I guess you know, trying to put things in place that meet stakeholder expectations um, that maybe are going above what the local regulations are, are asking for. And, and in many cases, I think that's probably where the push for these voluntary commitments came from. I mean, if you think about campaigners going all the way back to the '60s and '70s, it was always against um, governments and countries, but movement there. And so that's where the private sector started being sort of held up um, now. And, and so we've seen a couple of things. I mean, on one hand, um, there are specific examples uh, where sometimes regulations goes against what you're trying to do uh, with voluntary standards. So that's where it can get a little bit complicated and difficult. Um, but we've also seen, I mean, you know, despite the rhetoric, I suppose, you know, sort of little pockets and movements of where regulations are actually starting to move. And actually, that's, probably where we're going to really see uh, a big step change in terms of 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 where things move because at the end of the day if you you can get regulations um aligned with with expectations in a in a a practical way um that's that's really going to um help support some of that of that step change that that we're looking to see Um, and so on that front i think that the way that um governments and regulators are included in the discussions is actually critical. I mean, you know, we went went through almost a decade of saying business can't wait for governments, but actually I think we've also reached a point now where we can't continue uh, without government actually at the table. Um, And that really also lends itself a little bit to um, us thinking about how do we actually do that, right? Because, you know, um, there's different approaches that work and sometimes it's a cultural thing, um, some some governments are more um, amenable to criticism. Others, actually, it's much better to take a softly gentle approach uh, with lots of of kind of uh, one on one, um, non publicized discussions. Um, and and so I, I think this is you know um, where I come back again to that point I made earlier on around you know as we start to to craft out these solutions uh, for different landscapes, and as, as we start to bring the different actors together that we think can make the most change, um, we really need to tailor um, how we do that, especially with governments. Thanks very much indeed, Mark.
0: Uh, Ruth, I wonder if I could put a, a more s- a specific question to you. Question um, questioner asks, um, role, uh, the frameworks like um, HCV, the high conservation value, uh, how do frameworks like that um, help at that landscape level? Ruth?
2: Thanks. Um, so, I I mean, I think as, as one of the things that I think has been really exciting and very positive in the last couple of years is, is is that people are are realizing no that you can't change practices without actually being there who changes things in the end is the people on, on the ground and it's and, and I think the point that Mark made is also a really important one, which is each landscape is, is, is its own place. Each, each one has its own actors who need to be involved in the process. And I think HCV, which is the high conservation value approach, which has been around now for, well, more than 20 years and, and applied in lots of places, certainly from, from our kind of no very practical experience. It's a it's a really useful tool for those that, that don't know it. It looks across both social and environmental values and it, it provides a good framework um, to 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 really look at what which areas in a production landscape do you really need to focus on because they have important important uh, uh, value for di- biodiversity or for people's cultural or, or you know, day-to-day subsistence existence or for for ecosystem services and and then which areas can you prioritise for production and no, that's basically what what we are all trying to work out is how can we have production landscapes where we are getting the right balance between protecting areas, producing in areas, restoring areas as as Matt and others have been talking about. We need to be looking at, no, we, we have a finite resource in the planet, how do we make sure we're using it well and I think the, the the advantage of hcv is it, it's inclusive it's very widely used it's in lots of legal systems it's no it, it and so it's a, it's a useful tool to 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 be using i think no we with as in in some landscapes it's been used extensively in others it hasn't and that's also important we should be using the right tool now we have we have a great toolbox now and so we should be using the right tool for each situation but i definitely think it's it's one of the the ones that that, that in our experience has proved very useful.
0: Thank you very much. It comes back to the point around every landscape being unique. So you have to think about the right tools to use That's, in an ind- individual yeah. uh, landscape. Um, Chris, perhaps i can coming back to you. We've got a, a specific question about the uh, challenges when you have companies that have uh, no uh, deforestation, peat and exploitation commitments, but then are deforest uh, using shadow companies. This is something that's been exposed in the past. How do you make
1: these companies accountable, Chris? Um, So the shadow company issue, yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges in the sector is the way that often these companies are structured, Um, the use of secrecy jurisdictions. Sometimes you get to a a level where you just can't find out any more information. Um, You see it a lot with like companies registered in the British Virgin Islands. There's various mechanisms within the industry going on to kind of um, provide a framework that we can work under. Um, The RSPO is adjudicating some cases where complainants have um, claimed an RSPO member is linked to a company. Um, So we're hoping that in the next year or so, there'll be some rules that will come out that will make it easier. Um, It's one of the challenges. It's also quite cultural. You know, Mark mentioned earlier the case of, you know, maybe an auntie owns some shares. or something. you do see in Southeast Asia that family owned businesses are quite common. So often we're trying to just work out family relationships and and trying to put these quite complex ownership structures together and then working with the palm oil buyers to sort of explain why why this would constitute a group and, and what that means in terms of exposure. Um, and that becomes, it. looking at multiple commodities, it becomes even more complex because we're well, going back to what Mark said earlier, you know, if you're a palm oil buyer and you're buying from a company that is deforesting for timber, there's kind of two issues. One is, um, so yeah, you have to work out whether that is a company and how whether that would that would fall under the company group approach, but there's an issue of what that means for your claims of no deforestation. If you're a palm oil buyer with a no deforestation policy and you're buying from a, a company like Jarum, for example, that supplies to many palm oil buyers that has cleared about 10,000 hectares of forest for timber, can you really say you're deforestation free if that company is in your palm oil supply chain? And then you've got this question of, do you have any leverage? It might just be that no, you're, you can't really buy from them because that wouldn't, you can't claim your deforestation fee, but there's nothing you can do about it because you have no leverage over them or their palm oil business is comparatively small compared to the timber sector. So you kind of just have to accept that. And then there's a question of, okay, if you do have leverage, how do you, how do you sort of apply that? And what can you achieve um, from that? And it is complex. And just as you have to take landscapes Um, they're all very different and take them sort of one at a time. You have to do that with companies because you'll find all different kinds of companies and sometimes you will come up up against um, a big conglomerate that is so opaquely structured that it's almost a battle sort of trying to find your way through it. Other other times it's quite simple.
0: Great, thanks very much indeed. Um, Mark, do you want to comment briefly on the challenges around the shadow companies and I would like to then turn to um thinking about the biodiversity got all the questions about biodiversity in our string
4: but Mark uh, look I think the only thing to really add to, to this um you know because I think Chris has, has, has talked through it quite well is that you know it's it's really complex you know um, and if you think about it you've got financial institutions basically trying to do the same the same thing right? if you look at it from a money laundering tax evasion perspective and and you have regulators uh and all those resources pulled into it and and even then they haven't really been able to stamp it out um and so you know that's one of the challenges that we face because you know we're a private company looking at trying to basically do the same thing that regulators are doing um but for palm for, for, for farm companies and, and, and supplies. And so I think, you know, we're trying our best, um, but we've also got to temper people's expectations around, you know, is this something that we can get perfect overnight? Um, probably not.
0: Okay, thanks very much, deed Matt, I want to turn to you. Um, question around uh, biodiversity. Um, what do you think is going to be the best enabler to address uh, biodiversity loss, obviously, in a similar space, but slightly different to the deforestation debate But what do you want to see uh, or to address biodiversity loss, palm oil, and and more generally?
3: Uh, that's a that's a huge question. Um,
0: <laughs> two minutes, two minutes to answer, please. Um,
3: look, I think I think the we're not going to address biodiversity loss unless we solve these problems. You know, bluntly, um, we, we you know, and and to and to address biodiversity loss in tropical forests is really a question of how we address forest loss. In many cases, not always, because there's a lot of poaching and and hunting and and various other traditional activities that goes on within forest areas. But 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 the vast amount of biodiversity has been lost as a result of agricultural conversion of forests. Um, So you know the the two questions are are very are very linked. Um, And I I noted a question in the chat about kind of regulation. I think obviously regulation is is incredibly important here. you know, and the the, the the establishment and the correct financing of protected area systems in Southeast Asia is is critical to the long term future of biodiversity, um, of course. Um, but we we also have to remember that biodiversity, you know, isn't we don't pin it to the ground with heavy rocks. It tends to walk around, um, and you know, it often walks around into the concessions and plantations and and areas of uh, managed and controlled by communities outside of these protected areas. So. You know, we need to have the conversations around biodiversity and the conversations around agricultural production in the same space. Um, and you know, I think it's important. And we're seeing this more and more now. You know, with the various COPs, with UNFCCC COP, and also with the, the Convention on Biological Diversity, we're seeing these conversations come together more and more. So that's that's promising. Um, and is there are businesses that are doing really good things. Particularly, actually, the palm oil um, plantations, by and large, all have um regulations and, and approaches to to deal with monitoring and and, and protecting biodiversity on, on plantations and that is a definitely a good thing um, the main challenge right now in southeast asia is is enough funding for the protected area to protect area systems there's just simply isn't enough funding we're talking you know it needs to be increased by a factor of 50 in most places so that is something that we needs to needs to change
0: thank you very much indeed um I'd like to turn now to thinking a bit about indigenous communities um, and smallholder farmers uh, in particular. Um, Ruth, perhaps you can uh, have a think about how, what's the most effective way to engage with indigenous communities, smallholder farmers, uh, so that they can support deforestation efforts um, at a landscape level? Another massive question, a whole entire conference worth of uh, there. Um, But if you could respond and, and briefly, please, I do want to try to get through as many questions as we can. Ruth.
2: Um, yeah I do really feel like that's a um, a massive question but but maybe a, a no a couple of things. I mean first of all again it's it's one of these things that it it needs to be locally led and you know, led by indigenous peoples and 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 smallholder farmers or at least they need to be very much involved so so that we find the right ways to do that. I think, working much more in landscapes and on the ground and bringing people together hopefully gives an opportunity to to do that because it's also very time consuming to be involved in in processes and and for but both many local communities indigenous communities and for smallholder farmers investing in that i think that's the other thing we need to be very thoughtful about making sure that that there is that that the time and resource they invest is is really going to come back and you know, provide better livelihoods, better security, all of the things which, which will improve their lives. So not process for process sake, but really thinking about how to find what to do, what do people need and how can we best support doing that while in turn engaging them with the, the you know, continuing to protect forests and, and natural ecosystems.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Very, thanks very much indeed. I want to talk about finance for uh, briefly now. We are. I'm conscious of time. Mark, I, w- I wonder if you could comment on how you're seeing the relationship between the finance uh, finance sector financing of uh, the palm oil sector, um, how the finance sector is now engaging on deforestation issues and what they're requiring of the sector. and how, How's that
4: changing, Mark? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a good question. I mean, so we've been engaging with the financial sector for quite a number of years now. Um, I think what's kind of interesting around the, the, the engagements with financial sectors was that, um, you know, you started to first hear questions coming from financial institutions, maybe say, um, best in, based in, in more sustainable, sustainable conscious countries. Right. So, you know, European countries, uh, from, from, from the UK, um, um from the U S, um, and what we start, so a couple of changes, what we start to see now, actually, is that you start to see uh, more local um, and also Asian-based uh, financial institutions also now being very much part of that conversation. The, the second trend I think we see around engagements with financials is that the conversation is also becoming, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for now, um, much more in-depth. So, you know, it, the financial sector is definitely catching up in terms of the understanding of what the issues are um, and also where the leverage points are. Um, but the one thing which I find kind of interesting is that, you know, if you look at it, so the question is, you know, they ask a bunch of questions, they've got some metrics in place, but what are they actually doing with the information they get? Um, one thing we haven't seen a change in yet is that they're still looking at these issues still from a very um, a, a kind of negative screen, right? So, you know, do you... Do you, do you meet criteria and, and do you pass the threshold for them to continue financing you? Um, and the question we've been asking for a long time, and, and it's the same thing also from the buyer side, right, is now at, at what point will we actually start to see good behavior being um, uh, being rewarded? So you know, instead of looking at it from a, from a negative screen, you know, is there a positive screen that they can put into place? Um, that's something where, that's an area that, that that's still, um, still developing, I would say.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Um, Chris, I want to turn to you just for a very quick answer. There's a question regarding um, historic uh, forest loss and how it should be best addressed. Chris, do you have any, any thoughts on what companies or how companies should be engaged uh, and perhaps providing compensation um, for communities and for landscapes regarding historic forest loss?
1: Yeah, that's the big issue now, a big discussion in in Palmol is um, deforestation rates have decreased as a massive um, discussion about um, what companies need to do to compensate for deforestation that has occurred in the last few years. You've got some established systems like the RSPO compensation procedures probably the most developed but there's um, company-led initiatives that are taking place as different Lestari Capital is one, Earthworm have their own um, fund that's been set up. It's what um, all the traders are are talking about, I mean, Sam Darby have also been involved in some of these discussions. And there's there's commitment, really. Everyone agrees that they have profited from deforestation, so they have to compensate. The big question is, what does that look like? And what mechanism? The RSPO mechanism is quite expensive. Um, I think it's $2,500 per hectare. So there's questions about um, how you compensate. Do you have to compensate? Within the area that was cleared, or can you sort of um, put money into a pool and then it's used for conservation in other areas? There's questions about government support for that. You know, Indonesia is increasingly becoming a bit more hostile to environmental movements with some of their legislation and um, government statements. Um, And that's also, again, why this um, cross commodity issue is important, because if you talk about recovery in just the palm oil sector, how do you do that in landscapes that are dominated by selective logging concessions, industrial tree concession, mines, where the government is the key stakeholder usually, where you've got communities, um, different ethnic groups. So again, it's it's this whole discussion about we can't look at these things in silo anymore. It does, They won't work if you've just got the palm sector looking at um, their recovery liability and then discussing ways at a company level about how they can implement that, you've got to have all the different stakeholders involved. And it's this constant discussion, like you've got to expand your policy, your view, your um, network to other commodities and other stakeholders because that's how it will work. But the specific recovery discussion, I think this year that's really going to be the key discussion, particularly for the trader refiners because everyone accepts that they have to recover.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Conscious that we're coming towards the end. I should have mentioned earlier, we, do have, we have put in the chat function a link to uh, environments research. So go to that now if you want to uh, link to the research and grab uh, the, you know, the report that uh, Chris mentioned. So uh, my final, final question to, to everybody uh, and, and brief responses, please. What have you taking away from the conversations of the last hour? Um, what have been the things that have stood out for you? Uh, Matt, you first
3: um I, I i guess what stood out and is is reassuring is i think there's a general agreement that we need to move beyond um sort of uh, commodity specific to a more commodity agnostic approach and that the need to focus on the geographies where forest is being lost is the next obvious step whether that's coming from palm oil or from cocoa or from soy or from coffee uh
0: mark for you thank you matt mark for you what those? What are the things that have stood out for
4: you from the last hour or so? Uh, you know, I think as, as as Matt said, I think it's 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 nice to hear that there's actually quite a lot of consensus around um, around what needs to be done next. And I guess for, for me, I'm, I'm just um, yeah looking forward to to welcoming other stakeholders and other sectors to come around the table and uh, and help you know help try to, to 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 address this issue with us. Great, thanks very much, uh, Ruth.
2: Certainly, the the alignment, but also the recognition that this is complex, and that there aren't no, there isn't a single answer, a silver bullet, a single stakeholder group, or or commodity or sector that's going to do this by themselves. But but quite hopeful in terms of being able to use all of the learning we have we have so far in in moving forward, but needing to be to recognise that complexity.
0: Great,
1: thanks, thanks, Rick. and and Chris, final word to you. What do what you what have you picked up in the last hour? Uh, yeah, same. Like I think it's good that we all agree pretty much on on the need to look at things across commodities, and informally we have these discussions where we all tend to be of the same view, and just hopefully from this sort of public discussion we can then start formalizing things and have more um, you know discussions that can result in policies and actual sort of on the ground changes. Because it's good that we all are heading in the right direction, the same direction.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, everybody. I want to draw things to a close Then, What I've learned is that it's, uh, however hard you try, it's very easy to let these things go around. And I apologize. We have gone over uh, by a bit of minutes already. So um, that's it. Um, thanks very much indeed to our panel uh, for all their time and to Aid Environment uh, for the support of this webinar. Uh, we'll be in touch uh, with a, to share a recording of, of this of the last hour so you can listen to it again at your leisure and share with your colleagues, and we'll, we'll include a link to the Aid Environment Research in there as well. Before we close, I just wanted to remind you that we've got a busy conference season coming with Innovation Forum. Um, We've got our future food events and the next in our Business and Climate Action series. Go to the Innovation Forum website for full details and how to register for discounted passes. But for now, I hope you found this webinar interesting. I've been Ian Welsh, and thank you for joining us.